Welcome to Real Estate Hackers, where you'll hear how real estate investors grew something from nothing. Property management is going to become more technical. Our entire business today is based off of a hack. What if you could put $1,000 into an apartment building project on your phone? With YouTube, with podcasts, you can catch up very quickly to a seasoned investor. Now here's your real estate hacker host, Chad Gallagher. Welcome to the Real Estate Hackers Show, where we talk to actual investors who use systems and tech to scale out their business and where they see this all going in the future. Before we get to this week's guest, a few words from our partners and friends of the show. Welcome to Real Estate Hackers, where you'll hear how real estate investors grew something from nothing. Property management is going to become more technical. Our entire business today is based off of a hack. What if you could put $1,000 into an apartment building project on your phone? With YouTube, with podcasts, you can catch up very quickly to a seasoned investor. Now here's your real estate hacker host, Chad Gallagher. Welcome to the Real Estate Hackers Show, where we talk to actual investors who use systems and tech to scale out their business and where they see this all going in the future. Before we get to this week's guest, a few words from our partners and friends of the show. Hey guys, Chad here, and we've got a special announcement that I am super psyched about. We are announcing the first ever Real Estate Hackers Conference. Get excited. It's called the Next Generation of Real Estate Investing focused on really the future of where investing is going, combining real estate, tech, and all the innovation coming about. It's going to be held in Lancaster, Pennsylvania at the Lancaster Convention Center. We're going to have 40 speakers, including many folks that you've heard on this podcast, folks like Matt Faircloth, Jerry Horst, Anna Kelly, Michael Manthai, even Eric Cabral, who produces the show, will be there. Networking at night on Friday and Saturday at some super fun places within walking distance of the event. And we're going to have 100 vendors from across investing. These are folks I wish I had met when I first started investing in real estate. Each will even have a discount coupon to save you money the first time you work with them. April 3rd, 4th, and 5th at the Lancaster Convention Center. Go to realestatehackersconference.com to learn more. That's realestatehackersconference.com. Use the code HACKERS to save 50 bucks. And man, I hope to see you there. It's going to be an awesome, awesome weekend. On to the show. This show is brought to you by Red Rabbit Insurance. As a real estate investor, I love working with companies and people who truly understand investing. If you're a real estate investor, I highly suggest talking to Ryan at Red Rabbit Insurance. Red Rabbit specializes in working with investors of all sizes, both for their personal residence, auto, and investment properties. Red Rabbit recently saved one of our investors $5,000 a year by switching to the exact same coverage. That's a down payment on a new rental. I personally saved 15% by switching to Red Rabbit, which is pretty significant. And Red Rabbit Insurance makes it super easy to get a quote. All you need is the address, your full name, and your date of birth. No annoying questionnaires fill out and Red Rabbit gets you a quote in less than a day. Email ryan at redrabbitinsurance.com or go to the website redrabbitinsurance.com or call 1-800-560-3015. That's redrabbitinsurance.com. Call today to save some money and get better insurance rates for your investments. Hey guys, this is Chad here and I just wanted to, before we get into the speaker this week, I wanted to give a quick little prelude to it. Ryan Daubert of Red Rabbit Insurance is actually the one uh, we're talking to today. And it's a bit unique because Red Rabbit's actually a sponsor of the show, but Ryan is so incredibly knowledgeable on insurance that we wanted to bring him on to actually be a speaker as well. Uh, Ryan's literally saved me thousands of dollars on insurance, but 
almost as important, taught me a ton about just managing risk with our investments both today and also long-term. So I really hope you find this episode as helpful as I did. I know I was taking notes during it. And so enough from me, on to Ryan Daubert. All right, guys, welcome. Uh, I am pumped here today. We got uh, an awesome friend of mine and just killer investor, super smart in the investing space, but also uh, the insurance space. And I have learned a ton uh, from Ryan. So, uh, man, pumped to get into it. Ryan Daubert in the, uh, in the studio today. Hey, thanks, Chad. Appreciate you having me on. Cool. So, uh, yeah, on the Real Estate Hackers podcast, as you guys know, we, you know, we cover a wide variety of topics here. Uh, and uh, as we've gotten to know Ryan, we've just learned so much from him um, about insurance and, and kind of how the industry has changed and, and how you can use it as a uh, investor to save you some money. And so that's why we have Ryan on here. Um, Ryan, why don't you just give everyone maybe kind of an intro of kind of how you got into investing or insurance overall? Uh, yeah, so I started my career in insurance uh, right out of college. So I worked for about 11 months at uh, ADP, the payroll company, um, doing workers' comp for them, so workers' comp sales. Um, thought after about nine months there, I could probably do it better on my own. Um, so I founded my agency uh, when I was uh, 21 years old. Um, and awesome. started just doing commercial insurance. So that's how we started, just workers' comp um, and then focused on business insurance. Um, from there, um, you know, fast forward about eight and a half years later, um, we really found a niche working with investors, rental property owners, um, and that's pretty much where we're at now. So we focus our agency on, on specifically working with investors, and uh, it, seems, uh, it seems to be a really good fit for us. Um, and then also myself. So um, I currently own some rental properties, um, mainly in Allentown, and I have a commercial building in Bethlehem. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'm an investor myself, which I think is uh, you know definitely super helpful uh, when you're working with investors as clients. Yeah, it's awesome. It, it it always amazes me how I can always tell when I when I work with someone in real estate as a company or a vendor when the person actually as an investor as well, it just, it just goes a lot better because you kind of know what the investor is thinking. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Um, cool. Uh, why don't you maybe, maybe give one example of like being an insurance agent with someone who, as someone who also invests, maybe some way that kind of gives you insight that, that maybe uh, other folks wouldn't have. Yeah, so I kind of use my own experience, um, uh, kind of what I'm looking to accomplish with my rental properties um, and use that to kind of tailor coverages for our clients, just like I have my own. So what I try to do personally is kind of maximize my cash flow um, while still doing my best to protect my asset and then also myself from liability claims. Um, so managing that kind of relationship with just my own properties, I think really gives me a good understanding and, uh, you know, makes it really easy to work with investor clients because I think everyone's really trying to accomplish the same goal of maximizing cash flow. And then from an insurance perspective, um, you know, not really exposing yourself to unnecessary risk. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, you, you, you simplify that in a sentence, but, uh, I mean, you've, you've been at this for a long time. I, I, there's like a ton of complexity there and different options of yeah. ways to go, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of little things investors can do um, to kind of not really jeopardize just little changes to not really jeopardize their coverage at all. 
um, but really maximize their cash flow. And um, like some of those things, we see a lot of investors really utilize low deductibles, and that's really a pretty big mistake. Um, insurance at its core isn't designed really for what we call like ding and dents. Um, for instance, say a bad windstorm comes through and you know $600 piece of siding blows off your house and you have a $500 deductible. You never ever in any situation ever want to go through insurance to essentially collect a $100 check after you pay your deductible. Um, because what that does is it puts a claim on your record, and especially if you have a large portfolio, um, it could affect your entire portfolio for the, up to the, really the next five years, depending on the carrier. So you could see increased premium. So um, kind of an example I always like to give, um, uh, it's not property insurance related, it's actually auto insurance, but same principle applies. Um, I had a client come over to our agency with $100 deductibles on their auto insurance. Um, gentleman backed out of his driveway and hit his mailbox. Um, resulting claim was $151. Um, not knowing any better, he, he put it through his insurance company. They cut him a you know, nice check for $51. Oh, the very next six months for having an at-fault accident, an at-fault collision on his record is how they classified it. His premium went up over $300. Oh, um, oh, an at-fault accident will stay on your record for up to five years. So do $300 every six months times five years. Uh, um, really, that's what that. So you know, do in your head what the what that works out to, uh, what that fifty one dollar check really cost him. So um, you know, the same to hold true for property insurance. It's definitely important to go with a higher deductible and kind of minimize uh, those small dollar claims that you know really aren't going to affect you long term. Yeah, is there a number that you normally recommend for a deductible? Certainly no lower than a thousand. Um, my personal portfolio, um, I go with $2,500 deductibles. Um, depending on the policy and, and the portfolio, it can make sense to even go higher than that. Um, if you have one rental property and say, you know, with a $2,500 deductible, um, you know, maybe, maybe say your premium is $500 a year and you go to a 5,000, maybe it's only 450. So like for a small portfolio, maybe that um, calculation doesn't really work out, but that same property, say you have a hundred properties. And so that $50, um, you know, times a hundred adds up to be a pretty nice size number. Um, and kind of little tip I say, or give their clients is if you say you put that $50 in a savings account and then say it's a hundred property portfolio, should you have to pay a higher deductible? Um, really, you could just pull it from the savings that you accrued over, um, you know, that fifty dollars times times a hundred out of your portfolio. Right, right. Um, yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, and I know some we, we manage a lot of properties, and sometimes we have owners who want to put in claims for, you know, fifteen hundred dollar, you know, sewer backup type stuff like that. And and that's, uh, you know, it sounds like what we were we were kind of saying is like hold the insurance claims for the fires, the floods, stuff like that. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, it really just, the metrics don't really work out um, long-term to put in those small dollar claims like that. Cool. Uh, what are, I mean, what's, I'm sure you've just learned a ton of tricks along the way. Is there something that kind of comes to mind that you kind of suggest to owners? I know you mentioned one here about kind of um, increasing the deductible. Uh, what, what else kind of comes to mind in terms of like tricks of how investors should, should work with insurance? So I think probably the main one is just make sure you're really carefully reviewing your policies and you understand what um, type of coverage you have. 
Um, we see it all the time where an investor will say have like an actual cash value policy. Um, and an actual cash value policy, uh, say you have a total loss, they settle for market value minus depreciation. So it doesn't matter if your policy has $500,000 in coverage, if the market value of the property is only 100,000, that's where they, that's the max payout you ever get. And then they'll look at things and start, um, and they'll add in back in depreciation so they could say, hey, the roof is 20 years old, and, you know, the original plumbing and, uh, you know, you never updated it. And, uh, you know, so we'll knock off 20,000 for that. And, and it kind of goes, uh, it kind of snowballs from there and you can end up with a significantly smaller check than maybe what you're anticipating. Um, what we run and what we always recommend to our clients is going with full replacement cost coverage. So um, what replacement cost is, regardless of depreciation, is not factored in. They don't look at market value. It's the carrier's estimate of what it's going to cost to rebuild your home or your, your rental property um, exactly as it stands with no deductions for depreciation. Um, and the market is getting so competitive with all the carriers that a lot of times replacement costs can be the same price or even less money sometimes than those actual cash value policies. Um, so you definitely, definitely want to make sure you're reading your policies, understand what type of coverage you have. Um, also some carriers are getting a little creative with the way they kind of blend actual cash value and replacement cost policies. Um, for instance, State Farm, we see it all the time. They'll do what they call similar replacement cost coverage, um, which basically gives them freedom to rebuild the house with similar materials. So if you have a solid brick house, they might say, hey, you know, masonry veneer is close enough. It's similar to brick. So we'll rebuild it that way. Um, and so really just understanding your policy and, and really um, you know, if, if you don't understand it, then ask someone who, you know, definitely, you know, might have a little bit more knowledge um, just to make sure you're not kind of, you know, falling in, into any of those pitfalls. Yeah, I mean, I got to say, I, I mean, I've learned a lot about real estate over the years. And when I read these insurance policies, uh, it looks like Greek to me. Uh, <laughs> it is long and complicated. I don't know if that's intentional or not, uh, but... <laughs> It, it is sure hard to read and, and definitely not the most exciting. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense of basically, you know, potentially even saying to someone who, who does, you know, have a background in this and say, Hey, Hey, does this, does this look like a reasonable policy? Yeah, absolutely. And, and even the quote sheet. So when you're, if you're getting multiple insurance quotes um, from different carriers, none of the quotes are on the standardized form. So everyone looks a little bit different. So, um, you really have to do have to do a little bit of your own research and dive in and um, uh, to make sure you fully understand your policy before committing to anything. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Um, talk to me about, so I'm, you mentioned up front, you're, you're a broker. So, uh, you know, as I understand you, you kind of work across different insurance uh, companies, different than maybe like a state farm who an agent would represent just their own. Is that right? And maybe talk through kind of the differences. Yeah, pretty much exactly right. So um, there's really two types of insurance agents. There's what you consider a captive agent, um, which is like a state farm, all state, nationwide farmers. Um, those agents really can only offer their their specific company's products. So a state farm agent really only off can you know shop around with state farm products. Um, an independent agent or a broker, which is what we are. Um, you know, we can have as many carriers as we can get appointed with. So uh, right now we're hovering right around 40 different companies that we write with. Um, so when we gather your information to run quotes, 
um, we're shopping now to all 40 markets um, and to make sure that we can maximize pricing. Um, little things that you might not realize if, if a property is a town over, um, you know, you can see drastic different rates and one carrier might really like doing that, uh, like that town and one might really not like it, um, which is going to impact your rates. So by having more markets um, allows us or really any independent agent to um, shop for the most competitively priced product for you. That's um, interesting. Do you, let me just pause here. Do, do you see like, I mean, I'm sure you see a lot of data, a lot of investment properties across different areas. Will you see that like, you know, if it's Philadelphia, certain, you know, a certain carrier just has great rates for Philly. And, you know, then when you go ex over to Allentown, it's, it's totally different in different rates in Allentown. You know, like yeah, for sure. I mean, there's, there's companies that they love writing in Philadelphia. There's companies that hate it. Um, and they're going to price their products accordingly. Um, if a carrier takes very heavy losses in the area, um, then they're going to raise rates on um, everyone else that's in the area to make sure that they maintain profitability. Um, so yeah, you, you absolutely have to shop um, with multiple markets to make sure that you're going to maximize that pricing. Um, for those reasons you just stated, because you know some carriers are going to like areas more than others. Um, and you can even tear that down by products too. There's some carriers that we write with that really like multifamily dwellings. Um, and that same carrier might not be competitive at all for single family homes. Um, so not only is you kind of want to diversify your shopping between carriers, but also, um, you know, the products, um, there's definitely differences in pricing as well. That's great. That's great. Um, talk to me about maybe, you know, the differences for an investor getting insurance for an investment property compared to maybe their own residential home. Do you see differences? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. So the product types are, are different. Um, so homeowners policies um, and what's considered a dwelling fire policy, which you know might sound like it's only covering fire, but um, we can write them on all perils as well. Um, that's specifically what you use for a rental property. Um, they're fairly similar related, uh, closely related as far as like the dwelling coverage. You're going to see that on every policy. You're going to see um, liability insurance on whether it's a homeowners or a rental property policy. Um, some things that you will see different is rental property policies always include loss of rent. So if you have a covered claim, say there's a fire and the tenant can't live there for three months, you continue to receive your rent um, as if they were never displaced. Um, whereas like a homeowner's policy, that'll be called um, loss of use. Basically, same scenario. You can't live in your own personal home um, for three months while it's getting repaired. You'll continue to receive money um, to go rent a hotel room, buy groceries, things of that sort. Um, so the overall coverage is somewhat similar, um, but there's definitely going to be differences between the products. Um, also, another big one is obviously um, your homeowners. You cover not only your home, but your personal property inside of it. Um, whereas a rental property, unless you're furnishing it for your tenant, which you know is fairly rare, um, you're not going to have any personal property coverage. It's, it's really just going to be geared towards the dwelling That's coverage and then... Yep. And then other structures of, um, like sheds, fencing, garage, anything like the detached garage, anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's super, uh, super. That makes sense. Um, talk to me, like, do you, do you recommend that an investor kind of bundle their own personal home auto and investment properties under, under one carrier, or do you suggest getting each kind of priced out separately? So what I say never hurts the shop. So the worst thing you're going to find out by shopping your coverages is that your current policy is the best option for you. 
Um, I'm not really aware of any agencies, um, you know, independent or captive that charge for shopping. Um, so it can never hurt. Um, as far as bundling, um, it, it, it depends. So sometimes it makes sense to bundle, say, your rental properties um, with the same carrier that writes your homeowners, and that'll give you a little bit of a discount. Um, for my own personal properties, I um, use one carrier for my rentals. And then I also I use a different carrier for my homeowners um, because when we run it, um, it just worked out that way for me and you know a lot of other people too. That actually using two separate carriers um, is actually going to be better price than bundling you know two different products like say homeowners and a rental property um, you know with a carrier that might not like rental properties. Um, so it definitely helps the shop and um, you know run it different ways. But again, kind of the worst the thing I always say is. You know, worst thing that happens is you shop and you realize you're with the best market for yourself. So, right. Um, right. Yep. right. So there's no, I guess there's no, there's no charge to, you know, sometimes you have like a, a plumber who wants to charge you for an estimate, uh, you know, to do some <laughs> yeah. major work. Uh, the insurance agents aren't really in the charging um, estimate yeah. uh, game. Yeah. Uh, you, you, yep. You got it. So the only thing it costs is my time. So, and, uh, you know, I, I don't charge for that. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's awesome. Um, cool. Uh, I, so I know one thing, uh, when we first got in, uh, insurance for some of our rentals, we had some insurance, uh, providers were always coming out and doing, um, kind of a drive-by inspection or maybe a full inspection of the property. And I noticed that other ones, and in particular, actually some ones that you suggested, um, don't have inspections. Do you have thoughts on kind of, I guess, you know, do, do all, do most carriers do inspections before writing the policy or is that limited? And, and do you kind of, I don't know, just kind of talking to the topic because I know it's, it does kind of matter. I mean, sometimes these insurance carriers will actually have some recommendations that can actually you know, fairly expensive of things they want done to the property. Yeah. So generally it's not necessarily bad per se, if a carrier wants to come out and do an exterior inspection. Um, but it's something that you, we want to balance in the underwriting process. So uh, for instance, some carriers are going to be extremely picky. If there's one stair leading up to the front porch and there's not like a two inch long railing, which to me, makes no sense uh, <laughs> next to that stair. They'll make you put one in. Yeah. Um, so when we underwrite a property and we'll use things like Google Maps, um, you know, we'll look at online listings online of the property if we can find them. Um, that's something that we balance. And we see, okay, maybe a, pro a property has, you know, what we would consider like minor cosmetic issues. Um, you know, maybe just needs, you know, new coat of paint, missing a couple shingles, nothing that's really going to lead to a claim. We know to, even with those minor things, we know to avoid certain carriers um, that are going to pretty much give you like fix it tickets for, you know, every one of those items. Um, so just something that we balance in the underwriting process. Um, but, um, you know, me personally, I definitely prefer to work with companies that don't do exterior inspections because um, I find it, you know, as an agent, you know, frankly, I find it annoying too when they're sending out letters for clients to, you know, make these minor fixes, which in my personal opinion, aren't going to lead to claims. Um, but generally kind of long answer answer your question is, is we want to balance that in the underwriting process um, to make sure that, you know, you're not going to run into issues down the road with the carrier. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess if you're doing, you know, if you're doing new construction, right, it probably doesn't matter, right? So if, you yeah. know, you, you know, you've just done a, a, you know, 150K rehab, you know, maybe it matters less than, than your kind of normal um, property. But uh, on a personal level, I find it to be super annoying. 
if nothing else. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's certainly not alone. <laughs> and, and maybe it's because we're the property management company, so we see even more of this. But, I mean, not only that, but, I mean, they are uh, – I find them to be quite demanding about uh, how fast they want it done and was it done. And we're arguing over, you know, uh, gosh, sh- things that sure don't seem that important to me. Uh, yeah. You yeah, know, and, and – and- and it's something too that can be looked at even after. So say you go through, you know, we bind you with, we bind coverage with X carrier and it's $500 a year. Um, and they come out and they say they want, you know, X, Y, and Z, and it's probably going to cost, you know, $800 to make those fixes. Um, at that point, we might even want to move, instead of making those fixes, we could even move you laterally to another market that right. um, doesn't expect if it's there $550 a year. Um, so you can kind of avoid those headaches. Um, so it's just something we look at it again, it's just something that we balance when we go through the underwriting process. Yeah. That's super smart. Um, talk to me about, uh, so you, you, we kind of talked about like when an investor should make a claim. I I love, uh, I think it's like super interesting how you talk about not making small claims. Do you have like a dollar figure in your head where you're like, if it's over X, you know, make a claim. Yeah, I would I would say you want to, generally speaking, um, and this isn't going to hold true for every single person out there, but generally you want there to be a comma in whatever the claim amount would be over the deductible. So um, if you have a $1,000 deductible, you really don't want to be submitting $1,500 claims um, to essentially get a $500 check. Um, you really want to make it um, you know, worth your while to submit a claim. So. What I always say is if it's something minor, um, like specifically for my clients, call me first. Um, if you had call me and ask for my advice, we don't record it as a claim. Um, whereas like if you'd call say State Farm, um, they're obligated to record as a claim. So even if you don't follow through with it, it still shows up on your record. Um, so I always say if you're unsure, call me first and say, you know, hey Ryan, you know, this happened, what do you think I should do? Um, and generally about 90% of the time, my answer is gonna be get an estimate on it first. Um, especially if you're working with a property management company, they could, they probably have, um, you know, someone on staff or a resource, um, that is able to maybe fix things that, um, you know, a regular contractor might charge, you know, a high price for, they could, might be able to do it in house for a little bit less. So I always say get estimates first before we go down the process of the road of submitting a claim. Um, now you have a kitchen fire and everything's destroyed inside. Obviously we're going to submit a claim for that. If it's, you know, 20, 25,000 in damage, um, you know, I always tell my clients, feel free to bypass me, call a carrier directly if you need to. Um, but anything that's even questionable, I always just recommend, you know, or if I'm not the agent on it, um, you know, call your agent first and, and discuss it with them. Um, but generally speaking, rough rule is, you know, make sure there's a comma in whatever that repair amount is over and above your deductible. So, um, for me personally, if with my $2,500 deductible, I'm not really going to submit anything under 3,500, you know, 4,000. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. God. The one thing you said, I just want to make sure I got you right there. So you're saying if I call my actual insurance company and I say, Hey, I, you know, had some water damage in the basement. I'm just calling to kind of get your advice of, you know, how this would work. And maybe I even forget what my deductible is. Uh, yep. They, Same thing with yep. auto and property insurance. Um, they record it as a claim. So auto insurance, it goes on your record as a $0 claim. Um, but, you know, kind of the example I gave earlier where I had a client that backed into their mailbox. If they say, if you call your insurance company and say, hey, I backed into my mailbox, 
they record that on your record as a zero dollar claim, which is an at fault collision, um, which still impacts your can impact your rates. Um, uh-huh. Same thing with property insurance. You call and say, hey, I had water damage. I'm not sure if it's covered or not. That goes on your um, your what they call your clue report, which is basically your insurance claims history. Um, so when you go to shop, other carriers can see that. Um, and it definitely will impact your rate. Um, so yeah, absolutely. If you call your insurance company directly and say, Hey, X happened, they record it as a claim. That's good. This, this is why we pay the big bucks, Ryan. Tons of interesting information here. Um, so it's almost like a credit report where like, you know, if you go, you pull some credit reports too many times, your, your credit starts going up. Same kind of concept, I guess, that kind of sits on your on your report. Yeah. Yeah. And it'll stay on your record. Uh, most companies look back five years. So it goes with auto insurance and property insurance. They can see any claim you submitted within the last five years. Awesome. Um, and even if it's in an LLC, if your name's tied to the LLC, um, you know, big data uh, kind of figures that out too. And you'll see that pop up on your, uh, your report too. So, um, and it's definitely more critical, the larger your portfolio, um, you know, you're, it's in your best interest to keep your claim record. Um, you know, as clean as possible. So, um, you know, I always just say rely on your resources and, and, you know, make sure you're calling, um, you know, if you're working with independent agent, um, call your independent agent first um, and, you know, kind of run it by them before you call the carrier directly. Yeah, that's great. Um, okay. Talk me through, uh, you know, as you probably know, and, and as our listeners do, I'm kind of fanatic about tech. Uh, are you seeing tech kind of impact insurance? So I always like to joke that insurance, the insurance industry is kind of the only industry completely devoid of any meaningful technological innovation in the last 20 years. Um, A lot of carriers you'll see, like the smaller mutual companies, they're still working on paper applications. Um, Some carriers don't accept e-signatures. Some carriers only accept paper bills. Um, And a big reason of that is insurance is, uh, as it should be, is very, very heavily regulated. Um, If a carrier even wants to use a new application for homeowner's insurance, that all has to be approved by, um, you know, the state regulators. So a lot of, especially the smaller companies, are really slow to kind of adopt, um, you know, things that every other industry, uh, you know, is just part of their day-to-day operations. Um, we are starting to see some of the larger companies um, start to streamline their underwriting processes, um, you know, obviously accepting e-signatures and things of that nature. Um, so there's starting to be some change, um, but as a whole, the insurance industry is definitely kind of a dinosaur. Um, so you really, it's still, you still really need to rely on, on essentially people. It's still definitely a people business, um, you know, to do a lot of these things um, where like you know, a lot of, like it, it's really for, uh, I guess I should say for like investors specifically, uh, there's no good carrier really form for someone to go online and get a good insurance quote um, you know, or shop multiple markets. It still has to be individually looked at. So, um, that I don't really see changing um, in the near future. Um, so, so yeah, I hope that kind of answers your question, but uh, yeah. there's so, not so, too, too much meaningful innovation. Yeah. One thing I have seen that I know you do that I like is our, our first insurance agent, I felt like they were asking for like a 50 questionnaire uh, report on every property I sent over. Uh, I mean, it was <laughs> exhausting. And, you know, as your properties increase, 
getting quotes is, is actually, you know, I mean, you could spend five hours sure. filling out these, oh, you know, you, yeah. um, but I, I've noticed that you uh, don't require that. I think you just require the address and maybe the social security number of the maybe birthday. I mean, it's like three or four fields. Um, yep. Talk me through it. Is that because you're pulling into a tech database that has a lot of that information already? So on an agency level, um, not the insurance industry as a whole, but just on an individual level, as an agency, we try to leverage technology as much as we can to be more efficient. Um, so kind of, at least for us, gone are the days of, you know, asking you a hundred questions. Um, we underwrite a lot of that information in house. Um, so thankfully Google maps is a, you know, exists in our, in our time. Um, and we can really find a lot of that underwriting information, um, ourselves. So, uh, my staff, um, when we give them an address, they will look at everything they can find online as far as you know, the information on the property, down to even type of heating system it has, um, to really keep you or, or the end client from having to gather that themselves. Um, a lot of times the client, you know, might not even know, uh, you know, some of the information, um, you know, as far as like when the last year the heating system was updated, things of that nature. Right. Um, so we just try to use technology to really be more efficient in our underwriting process yeah. um, and turn things around a lot quicker. So um, our goal, um, you know, we always try to turn quotes around within 24 hours. Um, if someone really needs us to, we can do it in like five, 10 minutes, but um, you know, don't tell a lot of my clients that. So we try to turn things around in 24 hours and you know, it's as long as it takes us to shop 40 markets. Um, and then kind of touching base on um, what you're saying as far as the underwriting information we need. So really just a buyer's name or a property owner's name, their date of birth and the property address. And then if it's a rental property, just really number of units. Um, and we kind of take it from there and run with it. Um, not to say there's not an occasional question that might come up, um, but uh, you know, generally, probably 95% of our cases, that's that's really all the information we'll need to kind of start running with it. That's great. And and like you were saying, is a lot of that actually coming from like Google Earth that you're basically just able to kind of look at the property uh, through? Yeah. So issues? we can. Yeah. So a couple different data sources, but. Um, to keep it kind of simple, yeah, Google Maps um, helps a lot. We can find a uh, type of roof on it um, of a property, um, see how many units are in a row. That's something carriers like to see if it's uh, or know if it's in a um, uh, like a row of homes, how many different homes are in a row. Um, type of construction we can really pull from there. Um, everything else can come from public data sources. So like MLS, um, it's a, a good resource. Uh, we can look up square footage of the property, year of construction. Um, and all that factors into calculating the replacement cost for a quote. Um, also, it really helps us because um, even like, kind of circling back to Google Maps, some carriers say there's a row of 10 homes and there's a convenience store in the end. Um, that's restricted with some carriers. So we know automatically not to shop, you know, X, Y, and Z carriers if we see things like that. Um, so that really helps uh, expedite and, and kind of speed up that underwriting process for, for our clients. Cool. Um, that's awesome. Uh, talked about the next, like, you know, three to five years. Do you, is there anything coming on the pipeline in the insurance industry? I, I know you kind of mentioned a lot of it hasn't changed. Although I, I will say, I actually think your ability to pull quotes in a day across 40 providers only requiring three to four pieces of info. So I think you're kind of under, 
cutting. Uh, I think there is some change there, right? And that, that, that I don't yeah, think. And, yeah. And, yeah, I think that's more on an agency level, so an individual level. So um, like the industry as a whole is a dinosaur, um, but they're, you know, I'm not the only one. There are definitely some innovators in the industry and in the space that uh, more on the agency level are doing things that kind of speed up the process and make things more efficient for their clients. Yeah. Um, so there is some innovation. It's just mainly on that um, that agency side. Right. Um, industry as a whole, um, I think there are going to be there are some neat products that are starting to be worked on. Um, one thing that kind of interests me is um, you know what's called like small captive. So um, insurance companies are starting to look at ways to group risks together. So um, like a simple example of what a, like a small captive would be is. You know, you and 10 of your friends um, gather all your rental properties together um, and set them up as what do you call like a captive insurance company where, um, you know, claims come from the same group of just that your small group of uh, friends and things like that. Those mini mutual companies, I think, are going to start to be more prevalent in the future. Uh, Certainly not in like the next like two to three years, but, you know, five years, 10 years down the road, I think we're going to see a lot more. products like that. And that's going to be very good for the investor space where, you know, you're a good operator and, you know, five other good operators, um, you can join together and kind of share in the risk, um, which is really going to positively impact premiums, um, you know, and, uh, and kind of make it a much better product for, for investors. Yeah. That's interesting. Especially if you invest in, I would say like, uh, you know, a class or newer construction, uh, nicer stuff where you're just not seeing those claims and yet you're probably getting grouped into, you know, frankly, some homes that are in some rougher neighborhoods that are seeing a lot more claims. You could probably yeah. make some, make some impacts. There. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like large numbers as like on average, um, a homeowner will submit a homeowner's insurance claim once every 20 years. Um, so, and especially with like those A-class properties, those newer properties, um, you know, a lot of new homes have even sprinkler systems in them. Um, those claim amounts are really going to start to tear down, um, you know, and so, yeah, there's definitely some neat stuff coming down the pipe, um, really specifically those like mini mutual companies. So I, I think it's definitely going to be pretty attractive for investors when they, um, they figure it out. So there's a company, a couple companies in Europe um, actually kind of doing it now and are even doing it with auto insurance. Um, and I think that's going to be, everyone's kind of watching them and seeing how they pulled off first. And then, uh, right. yeah, I think you'll definitely start to see it come over here. That's interesting. That's super interesting. I, I haven't even, I haven't really thought about that, but it makes a ton of sense. Um, talk to me just a little bit about, uh, renters insurance and landlord liability insurance. I know something that we do, we make our tenants, um, have renters insurance. And if they don't, we kind of mm-hmm. opt them into, uh, landlord liability insurance, it's, it's covered by them and they're the ones actually paying for it. Um, you know, basically it's kind of covers their mistakes, I guess, that, you know, if they do things to the house that end up, you know, burning the house down or something. Um, yeah, do, ab- do you absolutely. recommend this for investors? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I always say you kind of want to make somebody else a low hanging fruit. So um, if you have a, um, if you're a landlord and you have a tenant that has, you know, say a dog that, you know, you might have a bite history or, or, you know, I really any pet um, by requiring them to purchase renter's insurance, 
um, you're really protecting yourself from a, a eventual lawsuit. So I don't know, basically, uh, dog bites, everybody's getting sued. So property owner, the, the tenant, everybody's getting sued. Great uncle, you know, great aunt Millie's getting sued too. Anyone they can, uh, attorney can name on a lawsuit. <laughs> right. Um, they're going to definitely put their name on there. So by requiring a tenant to have a renter's insurance policy, um, you're really protecting yourself because that makes them the low hanging fruit. So they'll, uh, an attorney will see that, you know, liability limits sitting there and, um, you know, they go after them first rather than the actual, um, property owner. Um, and in the absence of that, I know a big challenge with investors is making sure, um, that their, um, uh, their tenants actually have renter's insurance or they don't buy it, show it at closing and cancel it two days later and they never know about it. So, Right. Um, I know Slate House has that product, that uh, tenant legal liability, uh, the tenant landlord liability, um, which is definitely giving the landlord an added level of protection um, and kind of some assurance that there's some coverage in place should you know any kind of property risk uh, or property damage happen. Yeah, we uh, we had a tenant. Uh, this is a crazy story. We had a tenant who uh, was in the process of being evicted. And they came storming in to see our contractor and they told our contractor that they're going to burn the house down that night. <laughs> and our contractor didn't even report it because he thought, you know, well, Jimmy's crazy. He's whatever. I, you, know, you hear it, you know, all sorts of crazy things from tenants. And sure enough, the guy called his shot and he stuck to it and he burnt a six unit building down that evening. Oh my God. Uh, I, I don't know what's crazier that he did it. Or that he called his shot and told us he was going to do it. Uh, and so, I mean, I, I just, I, yeah, people do crazy things. Uh, so you hear that story and you think, yeah, it's probably a good idea to have some coverage in case people do something that just does not make a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I, I mean, um, and those catastrophic occurrences like that, it's, um, you know, you can't really predict it. I mean, I guess in this scenario, you definitely probably could <laughs> if a guy's pulling a Babe Ruth and pointing to the outfield there, but, yeah. um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, that's really the whole purpose of insurance is to make sure you're protected from things like that. And, um, you know, kind of other things that can impact you is, um, like in your portfolio and a lot of like kind of one example of that is. Um, you always hear investors talk about, or, you know, umbrella policies, um, to add additional liability, pop, pop, uh, sorry, additional liability coverage yeah. on top of, um, you know, their underlying policies. Really the main purpose of an umbrella policy is to protect you from getting sued personally. Um, liability claims are actually fairly rare. Um, the biggest one we ever saw actually through our agency um, was a ceiling fan that fell on the tenant while they're eating dinner. Um, and that settled for about $20,000. Um, really to get to that six, seven figures of liability coming from a landlord side, it's, it's exceedingly difficult. Um, as silly as it sounds, there quite literally would have to be like a four foot hole in the living room. Tenants telling you or the property management company for months about it. Um, you never do anything. Eventually, they fall through and get hurt. Um, that's going to be a big liability claim. Really, the main driver of those six, seven-figure claims is auto accidents. Um, so think of the scenario, you know, you're not paying attention, you blow through a red light, um, God forbid, seriously injure or kill somebody. Um, there's a very specific insurance calculation to calculate human life. It's called human life value. It's essentially the person's annual salary um, until their retirement age 65. So if you, God forbid, kill somebody who's, 
you know, 60 years old, um, you know, to, they're making 100 grand a year, um, you could potentially see $500,000 uh, $500, settlement there. Um, so what happens or what those, why those umbrella policies are important um, is really to protect your investments from that. So even if you do everything from um, like an LLC, put all your properties in an LLC, they're technically still business assets. So in that settlement, you know, the, um, you know, the judge or jury could come say, and hey, you know, these are your business assets. It's not your primary home. Um, and you could end up, you know, having another partner in some of your rentals um, that maybe you weren't anticipating or, you know, <laughs> they could take them all together. Yeah. So really, those umbrella products are actually there to protect you, um, which you might not hear a lot. The real purpose is just to protect you from getting sued personally, kind of what I call protecting that backdoor liability. So even if you do everything right from an LLC standpoint, um, you know, you're still vulnerable if you get sued personally. Yeah, so I mean, it's, uh, I, definitely I, something else. I, it's such an interesting topic because I know, I mean, one of the whole reasons of having an LLC is to protect your assets from that kind of stuff. Um, but what you're saying is, look, there's, there's still a lot of loopholes where, you know, yeah, if, if you, you can get around that. Yeah. If you get sued personally, um, you know, your, your LLCs are, those are just your business assets. So, you know, it doesn't really hold any, um, you know, obviously if you get sued through your LLC that, you know, usually limits your liability pretty well, but if you get sued personally, those are just business assets, just like, you know, your car or, or, you know, your, your bank accounts are. Right. So, so do you write a lot of umbrella policies for, you know, high net worth individuals as basically just a, you know, allow them to sleep better at night? Yeah, yeah, we, we certainly do. Um, and I would say, you know, when your portfolio starts getting, you know, maybe with your first or first one or two rental properties, you don't really need to spend the extra uh, money on an umbrella. Um, but really, when you start to accumulate some assets, you know, four or five rental properties and on, um, it's definitely something to consider. Uh, just to kind of, again, protect you from what I call like that backdoor liability. Yeah. It's great, man. Uh, gosh, learn all sorts of really good stuff here. Um, <laughs> I, I want to ask one more thing. Uh, I know I, I got a flood quote from you and you taught me something about the flood insurance uh, world and it's not a, a huge topic, but it, it, you know, it does come up. I don't know what, I don't know what percentage of properties are in floodplains, but I, I, I own four or five, uh, even, and these are like in Harrisburg. I mean, we're not talking like on the coast or anything. So, sure. uh, to talk to me to kind of like, you know, folks who are looking for some guidance on flood insurance. I know some investors just will not buy a property in a floodplain. I, you know, we don't really adhere to that. I think you just got to take it into account to your underwriting of the property. Um, yeah. but yeah, it, talk me through maybe a little bit about flood insurance and kind of help our, our listeners maybe, you know, learn a little bit about it. Yeah. So, uh, first thing to keep it real basic. So, um, there's really two types of flood insurance policies. There's flood policies administered, uh, through the national flood insurance program, essentially government backed program. Um, and then there's private market policies. So think of like travelers or, um, you know, progressive writing a flood insurance policy. Um, whenever you do a government backed loan, so like an FHA loan, VA loan, something like that, they're going to require that you carry that NFIP, uh, flood insurance policy. Those are generally outrageously priced. Um, like for a single family home, sometimes you even see like $8,000 in premium. Um, whereas if you own it outright um, and you're concerned about floods or you're doing any other really any other type of loan besides the government back loans, um, you can use a private carrier. Um, the private carriers, they can be a tenth of the price that the National Flood Insurance Program is. Um, 
So really when a property's in a flood zone, number one, we're gonna ask what type of loan it is to see if you're required to do national flood insurance policy uh, or, or program, um, or if you can use the private market. And when you use the private market, um, just from doing so many, you kind of start to learn the ins and out of, of the flood insurance world. Um, like for instance, uh, some carriers will restrict binding during uh, historical periods of high flooding. So. Uh, that springtime thaw, you might have trouble finding a carrier that's going to, you know, start a policy in the next 30 days. Um, so we can do a lot of things shopping kind of all, like off season, as I call it. Um, when carriers are. What is that, Ryan? What is, more yeah. What is kind of like the off season of flood insurance? <laughs> like, like kind of like late fall, winter, and then like early summer? Is that right? Uh, yeah. So, and, and generally winter time is best. Um, so really right around now is, is probably about the best time. Um, summer can be pretty good too. Um, but you actually, with the private carriage, you actually have to watch kind of the weather too. Um, I imagine they have some, um, you know, some guys sitting in a dark room with very, very thick glasses, just watching weather reports, um, 24 seven, because they, uh, really when you go to bind, um, something in the summer, they'll see if there's, um, you know, historically, if there's going to be, you know, rainstorms in the next couple of months, um, and they might not actually even offer terms, um, or if they do offer terms, it might be at a, a higher rate. Um, so yeah, so you definitely, you definitely want to shop and really off season is the best time. So, um, so yeah, if anyone's really using an uh, NFIP policy and they don't need to, there's always, always huge savings available by going with a private market carrier. And, and, and so like your average local bank, your average credit union, they're going to allow you to use a private carrier, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Really it's just more restricted by the loan type, just FHA and VA loans really ones that hit me off top of the head that, um, you know, government backed. So, um, they'll require those NFIP policies, which are, um, but which like are. conventional 30 year loan, um, you know, any kind of commercial loan, um, you're never, at least in my experience, you're not going to run into those restrictions. It's great, man. It's great. Uh, learn a ton here about insurance. What, uh, anything else come to mind, uh, that we didn't cover things that, you know, comp a lot or things that you're surprised that, that you're able to kind of help investors out. I think we pretty much covered it. So I think we got everything from flood insurance, uh, differences between homeowners, rental properties, um, you know, we had a deductible conversation, why it makes sense using the higher deductibles, um, and even dove into really actual cash value versus replacement costs. So, uh, I think we pretty much covered it all. So yeah, I mean, I, really I feel like, uh, I got a, a half hour crash course here in insurance. <laughs> Definitely learned a lot. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully the listeners heads aren't spinning too much. <laughs> I know yeah. it was a lot. I think yeah. I threw a lot at them, but um, but yeah, I, I think we summed it up. I, one good. more question. What is, uh, you know, um, I don't know if someone's like considering, like, is it even worth my time to get a quote? Like what kind of savings do you see as maybe like, you know, being fairly re reasonable, you know, if someone's had a policy for, you know, five, six years from a kind of traditional carrier. I mean, are you seeing savings in the like, 15, 20% range or it, you know, does it never get that high? Yeah. I mean, it all depends. There's about a million and one things that factor in your insurance rate from again, like your claims history, um, you know, where the property is type of property, everything like that. 
Um, or if you're with a carrier that likes the type of business that you're giving them. Um, generally speaking, when we see someone coming from like a state farm, all state nationwide, we can usually improve coverage, maybe close some of those like similar replacement cost loopholes they you know might have on their policy. Um, really offer better coverage at you know, maybe like a 30% discount, um, wow. sometimes a lot greater. Um, I've seen customers paying like exorbitantly for homeowners. Um, you know, about a month ago, we had a, um, uh, she was a lady, she was actually a widow. Her uh, late husband set up their insurance, you know, 20 years ago. Um, you know, st- average rent of the mill single family home, about 250000 in dwelling coverage. They were paying like $2,500 for um, we got them down to under 500 for the year with actually better coverage with a better quality carrier. That's crazy. Um, so not saying everything's going to be a home run like that, but um, I say if you haven't looked at it in the last three to four years, um, it's absolutely worth your time to do. And, you know, if it's not with us, um, you know, another independent agent um, who's going to have multiple markets and be able to shop you around. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, hey, look, Ryan, tons of high quality info here. Learned a ton. Uh, I'm sure some folks might want to reach out to you. What's a good way to get in touch with you? Yeah, so um, you can visit our website, uh, redrabbitinsurance.com. You can shoot me an email directly if you'd like. Um, My email is just Ryan, R-Y-A-N, at redrabbitinsurance.com. Um, or feel free to give me a call. So um, our main number is 1-800-560-3015. And, you know, call even if you just have a question, you don't necessarily want to get a quote, um, anything you know, I could clear up that we uh, chat about today, um, or, um, you know, feel free just to give me a ring. Cool, man. Thanks, Ryan, for joining us. Tons of just really good stuff here. Learned, I learned a ton. Uh, I took some notes here uh, of things I didn't even know, and I've known you for a while. So um, this is really good <laughs> awesome. stuff. Yeah, yeah, glad. Thanks for having me on. So I certainly appreciate it. So I hope, uh, hope the information was useful to you and then all the listeners as well. Cool. Thanks, Ryan. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Chad. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today. I have one more request. If you like this show, could you just please give us a review on Apple Podcasts? I'd really, really appreciate it so more investors can hear about us. Follow us at Real Estate Hackers on Instagram if you're cool like my wife. And if you have a great real estate hack, hit me up. Maybe we'll get you on this show. Real Estate Hackers is an on-air brands production Eric and team are unbelievable. Thanks for all you do for the show. See you soon.